Welcome back to Association Data Points, where we discuss associations, nonprofits, data, and the people behind the numbers. I'm Aaron Peters, here with my co-host, Brian Seabacher. Hey, Aaron, How are you doing? I'm good. How are you, Brian? Doing good. We have a guest in the studio today. We do. Like in person. Yes. Always exciting when that when that can happen. We're here today with Avi Olitsky. And I've had the pleasure of meeting with Avi and just kind of having a conversation one-on-one. So I have a bunch of notes in front of me, but I have a feeling I'm not really going to need them. <laughs> Because he's just going to start talking about some great stuff, and we're going to sit back and listen. We will wind him up and let him go. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Make our jobs even easier today. Um, Avi, you have a really interesting background and and journey to your professional life now. Tell us a little bit about that. It's always hard, Aaron, to figure out where to start, but I'm assuming you're alluding to my formal training as a rabbi. I decided at a young age to become a rabbi because I felt it was the last dying profession of the Renaissance man. I wanted to do all these different things, not one career, but a really a gateway to many careers, and all of them underscored by the idea of leaving the world in a better place than I found it. And after many years in the congregational world and being involved with nonprofits and for-profits and chaplaincy and servant leadership, I decided to depart the pulpit setting, and I launched a consulting firm that we do organizational leadership and development. Great, and I love that you said, leaving the world a better place than you found it. What better segue into talking about your work with associations? Yeah, you're right. I it, Those of us who are in the association space come by it second nature, but it's almost as if it's a subculture that everyone on the outside doesn't realize that there are thousands of these associations mm-hmm which are really about engaging and gathering people around central communal causes. Many thousands. I have some recent work. I've been looking at uh, 990 filings. And uh, if you just look at 501c6s alone, you know, uh, like trades and, you know, it's some interesting groups in there. But uh, that's almost 22,000 entities right there out of like 350,000 nonprofits widely, like churches, hospitals, other organizations. I mean, people are working... This is a big sector, and people don't necessarily realize that. Like billions of dollars. And not only, Brian, is it a big sector, but the bigger the sector, the more challenging the problems and the more shared the problems. Yes. And so if we're able to do strategic work within that space, we have a greater impact because of the force multiplication of how sizable the industry is. Well, we met Avi at Associations North recent Infusion 2023 conference, and we were able to, as we were we were working in our booth, we also were able to step away a couple times and uh, catch some of the sessions. One of the sessions that uh, Avi presented is about alternative revenue modeling. So, hoping you can tell us a little bit more about that today. We know that's a that's a hot that's topic a hot one. in the it, association world. Right. It, it's it's hot because. Every organization, especially in the nonprofit space, needs revenue. They're right? putting the nonprofit in nonprofit. <laughs> right. Now, the, the truth is, the balance, in my opinion, is there's a misunderstanding about nonprofit. Nonprofit is a tax status. Yes. The only difference between a nonprofit and a for-profit is a nonprofit effectively has to spend all of its money. And even if spending its money means putting in its reserves or paying forward to process and move forward ahead in progress. In my opinion, alternative revenue modeling is understanding not backstops or secondary opportunities to continue to grow an organization. 
it's responding proactively to the society and situation at hand so that if and when they recognize that there's mission drag or mission drift, they could do better to grow in service of their mission. So how to put that a little bit plainer language, the world in which we used to live was predicated on loyalty. Our grandparents' generation, and this is dating myself, but the generation pre-World War II, they participated and connected with institutions, organizations, out of a sense of fealty. This is my club. This is my synagogue or church. This is my healthcare center. This is my hospital. This is my university. And there was this sense of really proud loyalty. The next generation, the generation that came after the war, they participated not out of a sense of loyalty, but their commitment was predicated on guilt. This was an institution that my parents built. Mm. This is what happened. My parents pulled themselves up by their bootstraps or they did this for my family or they survived the war or whatever it might be. Our generation, the current generation, is predicated on a sense of benefit. We will associate and consume if we could define and derive benefit from something. If we can't, then we immediately leave. And maybe immediate is, is a brash statement, but very quickly leave. And many of the older revenue models, especially in association spaces, are set it and forget it. Let's get someone to join and great, we know that they will continue to join and our revenue is based on membership dues. And 40% or 50% or 70% of our operation budget, our operating budget is based on membership dues. We need to be thinking of alternative revenue models which help inform how our customer, our members, our target audience and population can derive benefit. So you're moving kind of more towards a transactional world, which in some ways it's easy to understand and I think it it, it makes a lot of sense, but uh, is something lost there? Yes. You're, you're speaking to it explicitly, Brian. Something is lost because we started to view the world in a transactional way. And in the association space, as well as other membership-type organizations like houses of worship or community centers, they say, what am I getting for my money? I'm guessing you, you perform weddings for people who didn't come to temple very often. That's correct. I, I was actually one of the few rabbis in town, and I say this descriptively, not pejoratively, that really valued the opportunity of performing life cycle events for non-members, because I saw that as an outreach opportunity. Hmm. Now, the volume of those life cycles, sometimes you want to put a limitation because if you put up a, a placard or a shingle, say, come one, come all, then that's all you're doing, and you might have a board who short-sightedly doesn't see the opportunity for outreach and engagement beyond the walls of an institution. However, moving beyond that transactional relationship of what does it mean to be participating in a sphere of influence for a greater good or a greater cause, that's where either alternative revenue modeling or a different type of engagement and belonging makes sense. Sometimes we look for that immediate feedback for something and we people sometimes want so much agency in, in the energy they're putting out, what they're getting back for it, that, yeah, per your message, it can, that maybe longer-term vision is getting lost. That's right. There are, there are people who, for example, let's talk about NPR. There are people who are members of NPR, but they don't consider themselves receiving something 
for their membership. That happens to be the nomenclature. Maybe they get a mug in the mail. Maybe they get a bag or a discount somewhere. But they see that as supporting NPR. And likewise, if some of these 501c6s looked at their model not only as membership and belonging, but supporting a different type of cause, what does it mean to charitably support? What does it mean to understand how to elevate the industry? Then, and I've shared this with you when we spoke previously, we're able to truly invoke the late Senator Wellstone's message of we all do better when we all do better. Mm-hmm. That's such a that's a great call out for for NPR. I'm a longtime listener uh, for NPR. So NPR, reach out and sponsor our, our podcast if you're listening. <laughs> Although they're you're an NPL, so I guess not. Why not? But uh, yeah, but they're in their recent pledge drive. Um, you know, we heard this, and actually, let me rewind. I'm thinking now specifically of NPR, which is Minnesota Public Radio, um, also a supporter there. In their recent pledge drive, I heard something that I either didn't notice before or that is something new that they called out. Think about what you get from this. When you're sitting in traffic and you hear a beautiful sonata that takes you away, and they really did start to name and, and bring to the forefront, paint this picture of this is what you get. So I think that that's one of the pivots or redirections. One is, instead of changing the revenue model, being intentional about identifying and defining the benefit that your customer receives. If those benefits are limited or you don't feel are enough, then you need to explore alternative revenues. And some of those revenues could be predicated on partnerships. Some of them might not be membership-based at all. And some of the providers of that revenue may not be your community. They may be parallel. They may be different organizations, at least in that space. And again, Avi, you you teed this up beautifully. You talked about three areas of focus for diversification in, in the talk that we attended. Receivables, target audience, and then partnerships, which you just started talking about. In my notes, I see that you said most associations focus on one and two. Can you tell us a little bit more about this partnership model? Sure. We often don't realize the assets that we have. And some of that is by what I call zeroing out expenses. That's the first step. Zeroing out expenses is not cutting expenses. It's not going through your budget and saying, how can we get leaner? It's saying, what is the sweat equity or trade that we could get from our partnerships so that we don't have to spend those dollars, but still receive those services and still provide those services? So let's say, for example, in your sphere of influence is someone who's in shipping and logistics, and they could provide in some sort of trade the whole shipping and logistics protocol for your organization. You could zero out that entire budget item and understand that as if it's a financial donation or a revenue, even though it's zeroing out on one side of your P&L. The other side of the partnerships is sometimes we need to be as strong as the hands we hold. And what I mean by that is we can only reach as far as our wingspan. But if we start holding hands with our partners, and although it sounds a little Pollyannish, we're able to reach that much farther and further, meaning not gaining more members, but the reach of our industry. So whether that's advocacy, whether that's legislation or policy change, 
whether that's generating and creating a type of disruption within the marketplace so that we could create new product or provide new services. And then it becomes a feedback loop to those first two of gaining greater target audience impact, as well as those initial accounts receivables of greater revenue. Avi, tell us a little bit about, so we're, we're talking about some, some new ideas and some change here. And I, I wrote this down directly in my notes. People don't fear change, they fear loss. I think identifying that and, and sort of getting into that, that mindset um, of an association professional, tell us more about that. Sure, and it's always important, there's, a, there's an age old teaching, you should always name the person for whom you're quoting. Sure. So that is not my original idea, although I've adapted it, that's from Professor Heifetz at, at Harvard. Hmm. He, I learned from him that people don't fear change, they fear loss. And what does it really mean to fear loss? We're very comfortable with change. We're only comfortable with change when we understand that loss is not a part of that change, or at least that loss is mitigated. If I told you, if you made this change to your company it's go, or your organization, you're going to increase your profit margin by 200%, you're going to sign up yesterday. Mm-hmm. But if you don't know what's coming, that's where the trepidation comes. And part of this is understanding if we're going to change our membership model, if we're going to change the way we do outreach, if we're going to change the products and services, then sometimes you need a mechanism in place to backstop that. And that's one of the things any of the organizations that I work with, either in strategic planning or alternative revenue modeling, it's always about understanding what can be the backstop to prevent that loss or at least to assuage some of those fears around loss. And when we talk about loss, it's uh, an association is not simply the staff, it is the entire community. And mm-hmm. we, you know, for some people, this is a non-event. For some people, they are going to be enthusiastic. And for others, this is like hostile. I'm going to leave your association over this. Uh, how, how do you coach people through that piece like, where we have to, how, how do we make everyone whole here? Part of it, and I'm sure you're going to really appreciate this answer, Brian, is understanding the data. Oh, how about that? It's, it's about actually gauging the opinions, the input, trying not to lead a horse to water, for lack of a better truism, but to actually understand what are the trends that we should be following and what are the trends that we should be leading. And that informs not just how someone could be less afraid, but it helps inform the strategies that we deploy because a lot of these organizations, they confuse tactic for strategy. Mm. And that's where data comes in and understanding, putting your finger on the pulse of what's going on. In relation to that, one of the things um, that I find really interesting is this idea of, you know, we said we, we talk about numbers, but then the people behind the numbers. So we, we've said before, we have a lot of technology. We're very technology-based work here. But the technology is in service to the people. So always keeping that at the, at the forefront of what we do. You talked about measuring happiness instead of satisfaction. It's like, God, that sounds great. How do you measure happiness? Aaron, it's, first it's the big idea of what's the difference between happiness and satisfaction. Mm-hmm. In my mind, satisfaction is checking a box. Happiness is being proud that that box is checked or being satisfied happily that that box is checked. Mm -hmm. Satisfaction is phoning it in. Happiness is celebrating a win. If you look at measuring happiness of your consumers and your staff, 
you will understand that you not only did a job well done, but actually you're going to have a sustainable path moving forward. There's retention there. There's going to be implicit organic promotion. There's going to be self-serving and customer-based, volunteer-based marketing and spread of word. And more than anything, you're understanding that you're in service of your mission and not just in service of being in service. If it's about satisfaction, it's about keeping the lights on. If it's about happiness, it's about changing the world and serving that industry. How do you measure happiness? Some of that gets into data science. And there are a lot of scholars and academicians today that are looking about the measurement of happiness. In my mind, there are a lot of different tools that we should be engaging in and asking specific not yes or no questions of our consumer, of our members, of our audience. And part of that is because what happens if someone who's a member of an association is paying dues and looking at their invoice every year as a tax to be part of that operation, that's different than they are excited about being part of that association. And every member should be excited and happy to be part of that association. So giving them something to be excited about. That's right. So if you're looking at how products and services must meet the needs of your members, this is a big question. How do you figure that out? Well, first and foremost, you want to canvas for pain points. This is one of the things that a number of my clients and our firm's clients we're working with is how to understand those pain points of those customers, of those members. Once you understand a collective pain point, and this is something that I imagine in terms of the data that you're gathering and that your organization is producing, you're able to look at the collective pain points of the entire community and society writ large of where all of those associations are looking at. So if every single association is experiencing a retention challenge, oh wait, maybe there should be some sort of job creation and job retention metric that your association is providing. Or maybe I'm having a retention problem, but no one else is. That's right. And so you could see that your association or your your client or member is sui generis. And what are those extra services that could be providing to prevent that? Or is that a result of something else altogether that the association could be serving? So Avi, tell us your thoughts about how membership models might look different in the future. It's interesting you ask that, Aaron. The, what we see in the world around us, houses of worship don't usually lead the trend or lead the charge for understanding what happens in the engagement of people. They usually respond to society and pattern and, and mimic society. The most progressive, sometimes they're the ones leading a trend but not necessarily where it comes to engagement. When we think about the radical hospitality that houses of worship are doing, they've been working and changing and modifying membership models for the past 20 to 30 years. Synagogues are different than churches, churches are different than mosques, and once you start looking outside of the Abrahamic faiths and traditions, all of those temples and institutions, they're either closed or open and they're different writ large. Associations are starting to learn from that. And they're starting to understand that membership is not, yes, I want to belong, or no, I'm not. Here are your dues, here are not. And once we start looking at the complete decentralization of our society, 
perhaps as started by something like Napster nearly 30 years ago. Oh, I know. Good times. We could understand that there are different portals of entry and different portals of access. So it might be looking at something that's somewhat innovative, but not as creative, like a freemium model, right? We look at Zoom. Zoom is a freemium model. 40 minutes free, pay more if you want an excelled or added service. Now, again, to your point before, Brian, that's transactional. Mm -hmm. It's not about membership or belonging. But if you look at Uber, they talk about that as a membership. And again, there's a freemium model and a premium add-on. Some membership associations are looking at that freemium model. But if they start being a little bit more innovative, they're able to say, how can we engage people either intentionally transactional or not at all? We want to separate membership from revenue. Maybe there's an element of completely belonging and it's free and we're going to make fee-for-service for some of those add-ons, whether it's continuing professional ed education or certification or different types of shows or conferences or trade acquisitions. Aaron, the truth is, in my mind, if associations are going to survive the next, not decade, but let's call it three to five years, they need to each be thinking very strategically and intentionally, not whether they should keep their membership model, but what new elements of their model they're going to be rolling out. Because we are living in the era of hyper-transition. I can't tell you what's going to happen next year, let alone next week. And so part of that understands that we need to be rethinking that those long-term members that have been your members every single year for the past decade, in the next few years, they're going to be thinking differently about why and what they belong to. Right. And and in the association, thinking about the, the membership model, a good place to start maybe would be asking themselves, why am I using this membership model? Did I inherit it? Is everyone else doing it? Just kind of going back to is the this, origin. Is this the Netflix subscription I just keep paying for? That's right. And if not Netflix, <laughs> which is easy to kind of click, the healthcare member, the health club membership, the gym membership. Mm. There once was a time where we lived in a world where you belong to a gym. And if you didn't go, maybe I'll go next month. We are not living in that world anymore. Some are not. Yeah. I, interesting opportunity. I've seen there are services that advertise looking through your various memberships and finding candidates for removal and removing them for you. That's right. God forbid that becomes something that happens in this community. That's right. If, if we use one of these unscrollable or unlinkable or whatever the app or the technology or the service is right now to say, oh, did you know that you have a recurring dues cost to the following? And it just, with one click, it takes you out. We have a challenge. Yes. So how do we become, as, as someone interested in the health of nonprofits, how do we make sure that those nonprofits become something that is not easily just dropped off of the, the budget for next year because, oh, we're not using that. We don't go to that conference anymore. To, yes, I, I, we belong here, and it's important, either through uh, we get a good service from them and it's just a transactional thing, or really this is about status for us. Part of it is being relevant and meaningful. I think you've heard me share this story before, but one of the stories I often share is I was at a, a charity benefit for a private school. This is probably about 10, 12 years ago. 
And they had different games of chance. And one of them was to roll a die, sort of like a craps table, but it was one of those giant fuzzy you hang from the mirror of your car uh, sets of dice. And if you hit, I don't know, let's call it two sixes, then you won a big expensive car like a Lamborghini or Ferrari or something like that. And I think it was probably $100 a roll. And the person standing at the table was trying to make the case to me to play that it's such a deal. For $100, you could get a Lamborghini. If you do the 10 times, for $1,000, you could get a Lamborghini. And in that moment, I assimilated the idea that they didn't need to convince me of the deal of the century of potentially spending $100 on a Lamborghini. They needed to first convince me that I wanted and needed a new car. And then once I realized I needed a new car, then it was, do I want a Lamborghini? Mm -hmm. And then it would be a deal. You have to be able to understand and make the message known to your association members why they need you, which means parentheses. You have to first understand their needs and serve those needs, provide for those needs. Then once they understand that you are providing for those needs that you are the best or one of the best to address and provide almost in an irreplaceable way. Yeah, that, that member stickiness. That's right. We hear about that a lot. That's right. Retention. And, and I'll, I'll add one more uh, parenthetical. It may not be your personal or specific needs of yourself or your organization or association. It might be the needs of the industry. And so your membership is actually charitable support because you can't alone support the broader industry. So with, for example, if your membership supports advocacy and lobbying on the Hill that you couldn't do alone and you needed that collective voice, well, that in and of itself is an important stable to add. Any homework? That you can give yeah. our listeners. I was thinking three, a, three things we can do right now. Yeah. Or... Step one is take a look in the mirror. What is your association offering? What are they doing? Do you understand the needs of your audience and are you serving them? Number two, do an inventory of the revenue that you bring into your association. Is it all coming from members? Is it coming from sponsorships? What are those elements of revenue that are volatile or that could go away tomorrow? What is your risk? And then step three, if you had a magic wand, what is one thing that you could transform your association in its existence today to take away your stress points and your pain points and your burden? I guarantee you what you identify will be solved if you address both the service and mission-oriented service of your association, as well as some of those increased or challenging revenue needs. We've been so fortunate to have you join us today in the studio, Avi. What's coming up for you next? Where can people find you? That's a really great question. I'm doing a lot of speaking uh, around the state. One of the meetings I'm participating in is Leading Age Minnesota's annual and leadership meeting uh, in the fall. But over the summer, there's a lot of strategy work with associations and a number are putting together some proposals and bids right now for some strategic planning and alternative revenue modeling to deploy in September and October. Great. And then where can listeners find out more? We always like to put some links in our show notes. 
You're welcome to go to alitskiconsulting.com and I'm happy to have a conversation or a coffee. If you look at MinPost, there have been a few op-eds that I have written of late, uh, specifically on this topic. Most recently was last week, which was the first week of July around happiness and retention. And just feel free to Google Olitsky Consulting or Avi Olitsky, and you'll see some writing around that. All right. Thanks so much. And thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Association Data Points is brought to you by Hargrove and Associates. Since 1985, we've helped associations serve their most critical member data needs by collecting, producing, and delivering exclusive market information. You can visit us online at hargrovedata.com.